Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Psalm 132. A song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephratha. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your, sh- let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread, her priests. I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me to Psalm 132 this morning. Psalm 132. Um, It is a psalm with a number of voices in it. It's a psalm that begins uh, with a people calling out to God on behalf of remembering David, whose voice is also in the psalm. A people who continue with requests from that place. A people who then remember another voice, the voice of the Lord and the vow that he made to, uh, to the people, to David, through David to the people who would come after him and to the sons of David and closes with a continued remembering and calling upon the Lord. We, um, we have a psalm that has a lot of wonderful voices in it, and I hope that this morning we would hear, above all things, the voice of the Lord uh, encouraging the people that he has made provision for his worship. You know, before we really even dig into the psalm, I, I was moved by uh, the, the song that David and Amy sang this morning, particularly that line, as, I, as I've heard that song a number of times in, in the past, and it's various settings, certainly in the Messiah, but also uh, in the version that was uh, sung for us this morning and that we got to participate in. Just the, the simple guttural cry, unto us, a son. What's the nature of that relief? Why is that a guttural cry of a people together? I get it. I get it. Uh, at Cross Point Coast, we have a lot of families and a lot of kids being born, right? And I've seen the, the, the parents cry out, oh, this is my child, my son, my daughter, and all the excitement that's there. But why would a whole people cry out with such zealous joy that a son has been born. 
Oh, we have to understand that this is a king. And the king upon whom the government rests, on, on the king's shoulders. What's going to happen if the king doesn't have a son on whom the government can then pass onto his shoulders? There might be chaos. There might be confusion. What, what do we do? Wouldn't it be amazing if we just knew there's always going to be a son? There's always going to be one for, for, for the government to pass from one shoulder to the next. What if we knew that that would just happen forever? What if we knew that there would be a son who is great and it would never have to pass again? An eternal son upon whom the government rests. And his governance is with righteousness, peace for all the people of his kingdom. That's why the, the cry is a guttural cry unto us. Not just a son. The son. The son of the promise. Friends, it's in that context that this psalm that honestly I've wrestled with all week long. All right? I don't find this psalm exciting enough. It was difficult for me. I don't get this psalm until I remember the, that that the nature of the cry out to God that He would reign over them. And that He would do so according to His means, in His place, as His people, according to His vow. And all of a sudden, man, I want to sing this psalm. I want to hunt for a hymn book that's got this psalm as the text with a tune to it. I hope that that happens for you this morning as we look at the plea and the zeal. This psalm is a psalm and is about zeal for the worship of the Lord, particularly the zeal that is found in David. You see it right at the beginning. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. Why did he endure those hardships? Well, for zeal. A zeal also, this is even more important, a zeal that is found in the Lord Himself. These are a couple of the voices that are in the text. We have the voice of David and his zeal for the worship of the Lord. But we also have the words of the Lord Himself and His zeal for worship. Is that, I find that sustaining. And, and it's also a zeal that is sung by a people in these psalms of ascent as we continue to move through these psalms together as a congregation it's a zeal of a people who are drawing near to the Lord for worship. It's a zeal of a congregation who sings this psalm that includes the words of David and the words of the Lord. But friends, this psalm has its greatest fulfillment not in David, not even in Solomon, or Rehoboam who came after him, or any of the kings who were in that line for so many years until a son, a son was born. And it's right in this season that we celebrate that birth. A Messiah who would take his seat on David's throne and reign forever and ever. This psalm is about a zeal for the worship of that king. God himself who would take on the government among the people. Let's work our way through the passage. It's really got 
two sections. I'm going to break the first section up into two parts. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 first together. In verses 1 through 5, we see a plea and we see a vow. We see a plea and a vow, and then in the next section, we'll turn to the requests that come in the sort of second half of this first section. The plea goes like this. Remember, that is never a bad prayer to cry out to the Lord. Remember. It's never a bad business to be about. It's, it's what Matt so faithfully and so often leads us in in our prayer of confession. Remember. Lord, we're remembering and we're crying out for you to remember. Uh, what is our prayer of confession as it comes to crying out to the Lord to forgive? But Lord, remember that we have been forgiven by your grace and cause us to remember even as we pray this in prayer, in confession. Remember how David loved you and how you loved him. Remember David's devotion and the cost that it bore. Well, what are the in, in hardships? What are the, the things that David endured? Well, he endured them in devotion to the Lord, and they were told what he endured right away. It says that he vowed that he wasn't going to sleep. He wasn't going to enter his house. He wasn't going to allow slumber to come to his eyelids. Clearly, this is poetry, but it's poetry that express, is expressing a, a zeal and a devotion. David did sleep. All right? And his eyelids did close. But his devotion was not to take his rest until there was provision made for the promise of God to be able to gather in his presence as the people according to his command. David was zealous for worship. And it was at great cost to himself that he made provision for that worship that God himself is zealous for. For his sake, the psalmist is singing. The congregation sings together. For his sake, for the sake of David, remember us. Bless us. Cause there to be fruitfulness in our midst. I think of it this way. You might remember a number of weeks back, we were talking about sowing in tears and reaping a harvest of joy. Okay? David sowed faithfully. And he did so with a, with a purpose, the intention of seeing worship in the presence of the Holy God according to his command. Okay? According to his chosen place and his chosen means. David was zealous for this, and it cost him a lot. In fact, if you know the story, David didn't even get to build the temple. He sowed in tears. He never got to see a full fruitfulness from his labor, but he sowed faithfully in hope of reaping a harvest. Remember that many times he could have killed the Lord's anointed when he was being hunted by Saul, but he didn't, and he suffered for it. Remember that his trust was in the Lord. Remember his stumbling ways in which David stewarded the things that last week we said, they're too high for him. And yet he's called to steward the things of God among the people of God. To lead the people who belong to the Lord. And Moses didn't want that job. David doesn't want that job. And he suffered for it. Remember the shepherd boy turned king. And he leads the people to the worship of the Lord. And he suffers for it. Remember how he brought the Ark of the Covenant 
to Jerusalem. But he brought it the wrong way. And he suffered for it. And the people suffered for it. But for the sake of that faithful sowing, for the sake of that repeated, stumbling, failing, jars of clay sort of faithfulness, remember David and all that he suffered for the sake, uh, the desire of reaping, reaping a particular harvest that is a people who worship the Lord in his very presence. This is actually, this passage is actually a statement of humility, not for our sake, not because we have been faithful, but because there is one who has come before us, who has sowed in faithfulness so many times, would you reap a harvest in our midst? May there be a harvest of those who have gone before us and sown faithfully to the devotion of the Lord cause their harvest to be bountiful among us. Cause the harvest of David's suffering to be bountiful among the people of God. Now this is a question for us today. What business, what devotion, what faithfulness are we about today for which we will only see hardships endured? David saw so many hardships in his labor to see the Ark of the Covenant, the, the place where God had promised to manifest his presence, and that, that ark was supposed to be in the midst of the tabernacle where the people gather for worship, and it wasn't. And he wanted to see it gathered, and then he wanted a permanent dwelling place in, in Jerusalem to be established, the temple. What He labored for it. What is the labor that we are to be about today that we will not see any bountiful fruitfulness today, but those who come after us would see a fruitfulness, would reap a harvest who come after us. It's for that reason, you know, in church planting, uh, we planted this uh, church about nine years ago. Some of you are with us. Others have joined us very early, and you've labored a lot. But there's this mentality in church planting is that church planting is a three-year-long labor. Because typically, I don't know if any of you know this sort of thing, a little inside baseball about church planting, is you can typically get someone to support you but that support financially runs out in three years. So you've got to do three years of hard, hard work to get the church established in just three years, and then there's sort of this sense that church planting's done, now we just do church, right? But the thing is, in the middle of that labor, one of the things that God was gracious to show to me and those who were with me at the time is that we don't want to be a three-year-old church. We don't want to be a 10-year-old church. We want to labor not just to get something established before the money runs out. We want to labor in faithfulness to see the worship of our God grow up in our midst according to the way that he has designed for the people of God to gather in his name, by his call, in his presence, with his mission. We want to see that grow up. And the, the sort of metaphor that I've used is I want to, I want to plant a 70-year-old church. Now, if you do the math on how old I was when this church began, I want a church that is here when I'm dead. I'd love for my funeral to be in a place that still has not yet reaped a harvest of a people who are zealous for the worship of the Lord. 
Charles Spurgeon suggests that we can pray similarly as to what is prayed here in Psalm 132 in light of the martyrs and the faithful who have gone before us. I wonder, who labored 20 years ago, 70 years ago, so that we could plant a church in Brevard County today? Could I cry out, Lord, for the sake of your saints who have sacrificed in zeal and devotion for your name, for the sake of those who have gone before, cause a great harvest to grow up in Brevard County. I think of the church that was planted in my wife's hometown when she was growing up, and a church that was planted, there was much celebration when that church began to grow up in that small town in northern Wisconsin, but there were 15, 20 years of prayer. Some of the people who had probably gone on to be with the Lord, who had prayed and never saw the church grow up. But for their sake, Lord, cause their, cause their sowing not to be in tears, but for us that our rejoicing would be, our, our, our reaping would be with joy. Cause the sacrifice of the martyrs and others who have suffered for the sake of your worship to be fruitful in our midst. David was clearly zealous for the Lord, and he was zealous for his worship. I would ask you, do you care for corporate worship? Do you care? I'm, I'm not saying do you care for it. Like, is it kind of your cup of tea? Do you want to see the congregation? Do you want to see the people of God gathered by His call so that He fulfills His promise to be in our midst so that we see our God and we worship in His name. Do you care for that? Do you care in such a way that you would be concerned to labor to that end? Do you care for worship in the midst of the congregation? Or, perhaps alternately, are you more concerned for your palace than for the temple? you follow my metaphor. David says, I'm, I'm not gonna, I don't want to be satisfied in a kingly palace. I don't want to lay on a comfortable bed. And if anybody's got a comfortable bed in all of Israel, it's going to be David's bed, man. That's where I just want to cuddle up and, and just hang out, relax, close my eyes, take a little slumber. I'm the king, right? He says, no, he's zealous for worship. He doesn't want to tend to his household before he tends to the worship of the congregation. Are you more concerned for your house, your home, your family, your career than you are for the worship of the Lord among the people of God? Now, I'll be honest, I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe you're not. Maybe you are truly zealous for the worship of the Lord. But maybe that question strikes a chord that you ought to ask more deeply. Perhaps there is confession. Perhaps there's examination. Perhaps there's what in the world do you mean by that? I don't know what that means. What would that look like for me to be zealous for the worship of the people of God? How much ease and rest and comfort have you or I taken when there is so much work to be done for the sake of the worship in the midst of the congregation? According to God's call and his promise. What do I mean? Perhaps these are, I hate going to what do I mean? I hate going to the practicals. Then you'll just go home with the three things I said. I don't know what your thing is. I don't know what 
what thing has distracted you. Let me give a few that might help you, but there are probably others. Is gathering on Sunday morning on the calendar for you? Or is it like one of the options? You know what I mean? Because hear this, your presence in the midst of the people is part of God's fulfilling His promise to make His presence known. If the Lord God, by His Spirit, has gifted you, then you are necessary for the gathering of the body. Is Sunday gathering in the name of the Lord to celebrate His resurrection on your calendar? Or does, is it easily displaced by other things? Here's one, an option. Is an early bedtime on Saturday evening in preparation to be rested and energized in the midst of the congregation a priority? Now, I'm not saying that's what you have to do, but it's one of the ways that we could be zealous for the things of God. Have you read Scripture in preparation for worship, not just to prepare your heart, but so that this Word would be in you and among the people at work? So that you might even bring that Word among the people so you might sing more heartily. So that you might share in the midst of the congregation. Do you participate with the church in practical preparations? There are practical preparations that that need to be made. David found that out. He didn't prepare very well to bring the ark to Jerusalem. He didn't make the right practical preparations. There are practical things that need to be done to prepare for the gathering. Are you zealous? Are you zealous? Not just will you fulfill like a schedule slot in Planning Center Online, you know? Are you zealous for worship? I just want to offer a corrective before we begin to think that, that worship inside of this, roughly a box, a cube of sorts, all right, before we begin to think that everything that I'm talking about is, is, is preparation for this box right here and maybe a couple classrooms down the hall. Acts chapter 7, verses 47 through 48, Stephen, in the midst of Stephen's speech, he says, it was Solomon who built a house for the Lord. He prepared a place, a building. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Where does he dwell? Where is he promised to dwell? He's promised to dwell, and his desire is to dwell. We'll see this in a bit, very, more clearly. His desire is to dwell in the midst of the people, in the center of the camp, and to make his home with his chosen people. Today, his people are in a, a box. <laughs> make preparation to meet with him here. Charles Spurgeon, in reflecting on this passage, in this cry on behalf of David, in, remember in David's favor all the hardships he endured, he says this, how much stronger is our master argument in prayer that God would deal with us for Jesus' sake. In his favor, remember, O Lord, David had no personal merit. He had earned nothing before the Lord, but rather was zealous for the things that the Lord had revealed. David had no personal merit 
The plea is based upon the covenant graciousness made with Him. But Jesus has a merit that is all His own. A boundless merit. And these we urge, we cry out on behalf of Jesus for what He has accomplished, for what He has merited, for His favor, Lord, remember your people. We've been purchased by Him after all. That's good pleading, Spurgeon says. It's good pleading. The Lord remembered Jesus and all His affliction and what He's merited. Friends, we have an even better cry that this song encourages us to cry. May we remember Jesus who suffered for the sake of worship. Why am I zealous for worship? Because Jesus suffered for the sake of worship. It's what he's doing. It's what the gospel is about. To bring a people who are far off from God, worshiping themselves and the things of this world, to bring them to God, to be reconciled to him through the atonement of Jesus Christ so that we can worship him and be satisfied in him and take joy in him and be a people of gladness in him in his very presence. This is why Jesus died. And this is what he merited. And this is what the church is zealous for. If we're a gospel-centered church, we are a worship-centered church. We're zealous for the worship of our God, for this is what the gospel has purchased for the people. Now, verses 1 through 5 are a beautiful calling upon the Lord to remember. Verses 6 through 10 are some specific requests that come out of that cry. Come out of that cry to remember. The requests, the requests begin with, Behold, behold, we heard of it in Ephratha. We heard, we found it in the fields of Ja'ar. And again, one of the reasons why I find this psalm difficult is I'm just not entrenched in its history. I did just a little bit of work, and I found that the, David's men probably were in Ephratha when they heard that the Ark of the Covenant had been found. Ephratha, probably near Jesus's, or Jesus and David's, hometown of Bethlehem. And they hear, they hear of it. They hear that the ark has been discovered. It's been uncovered. And they found it in the fields of Ja'ar. Ja'ar referring to Kiriath-Ja'arim. The city that if you go to First Chronicles, you'll see that the ark had long been neglected and left in that town, Kiriath-Ja'arim. And the people had found it. And David is zealous to get there, and they're excited. We heard of it, and then we found it. And then what does he do? If you continue on after verse 6, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. We found the ark where God has promised to make his presence known among the people, where he's promised to dwell and to rule and to reign among his people, to reveal his glory and be worshipped by them. We found it. Let us go and let us bring it to the city and let us bow before his footstool. The ark had been neglected in the days of Saul, but now the worship of God according to his own design had been found, though it had been so long neglected. And when they found the ark, David and his people remembered the promises of God and they began to call upon him in light of his promises. What are the promises? Well, the first 
thing that they cry out, what's the first thing that they cry out? In light of the promises of God, they begin to make requests to God. Verse 8, arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. They found a box, friends. If you know anything about the Ark of the Covenant, it's just a box made of wood. It's gilded with various precious metals on top of it. There's a, a golden, what's called the mercy seat, with cherubim on either side, and they rise up. And it's, it's quite an impressive box. I don't have a box like that at home, all right? But it's still just a box, friends. And it's got some, like, stone tablets in it that have the Ten Commandments written on them. They're really important, but they're just tablets. And David knows this, but he also knows the promise of God to dwell in the midst of the people and to make this seat his seat. And so the cry is, Lord, go to your resting place. Go to the place that you said you'd sit. We don't just want a box, we want God. What value would there be to bringing an ark, a box, to Jerusalem if the Lord doesn't go there? For the Lord to go, as we'll see in a moment, it has to be of the Lord's own choosing. If the Lord does not go, why would we go? Why would we care? I'm reminded of Moses in Exodus 33, verse 15. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. If, you're, if you don't go before us, we're not going anywhere. David agrees with Moses. It's continued requests. If you look at verse 9, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy, clothed with righteousness. It's one thing to get all dressed up in the robes of religion. It's another thing altogether to receive the righteousness of the Lord. We don't want priests who look nice. We want priests who have been made righteous. So we're not talking to the priests. We're not telling the priests, hey, y'all be righteous. We're talking to the Lord. Clothe them in righteousness. What about the people? What about the saints? Let your saints shout for joy. You know, it's one thing to go through the motions of worship. You know what I'm talking about. It's one thing to go through the motions of worship. It's another thing altogether to shout for joy, to be made glad in the presence of the Lord. And the word isn't, hey, people, come on now, louder this time. I'm so glad David doesn't do that. I'm so glad. I, I've been in churches where that's literally like, come on now, I didn't hear you. Like, why are you talking to them? They don't got it in them. God, give us shouts. Work in the people. That's why we talk to God when we want good worship among the people. God, clothe, fill us with shouts of joy. These are requests for the Lord to meet his people and to supply everything that is needed for worship. We are dependent. We often say, as those who lead various elements on Sunday morning, that the Lord is more interested in worship than we are. Now, we tend to remember that when things are going sideways, like when the sound system isn't right or when you show up and the trailer is gone because someone stole it and you don't have anything to set up with. Like, it's in moments like those that you're like, man, as much as we want to worship this morning and we're kind of nervous because we're not sure how to make preparation given that all our stuff is gone, we remember today that, Lord, you are the one who is zealous for your worship. You are zealous, and we are dependent. So to be in a position of dependence is both no small thing, and it's a very good thing. 
So we cry out to God. We cry out to Him. You go up. You be in our midst. You prepare the priests. You prepare the people. And you keep your anointed. Don't turn your face away for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Christ, God, keep the kings. Keep the kings. Keep those whose business it is to steward the people under the Lord. The people are dependent in every single way upon the Lord to keep them and to make provision for his worship. David, in the first half of the psalm, and, and those who sing the psalm, they're zealous for worship. They're dependent upon the Lord for all that is needed to make approach to him. And so they make preparation. They do make preparation, and they cry out to God. And here the Lord, this most excellent voice in the psalm, the Lord begins to speak in verses 11 through 18 and as, the Lord, as the people remember the vow of the Lord. Verses 11 through 18 begin this way. The Lord swore. Now that's interesting. We have this vow language at the beginning by David and now we have this vow language by the Lord. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, then I shall teach them their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. What value is David's zeal? What value is David's oath and his vow if the Lord himself does not vow? What value is all of David's zeal and all of his sufferings? It's just sowing in tears. There's no reaping with joy if the Lord does not vow. I would even press it a little further if the vow itself of David is not in line already with what David knows about the promise of God. How much greater is the Lord's vow than David's vow? And honestly, I think it's the theme of the second half of the passage. David makes vows and requests, and the people join in that vow and request. But the Lord's vow is greater. The Lord reveals his desire. He reveals his zeal and reveals his purpose and his promise to David and the people. The first purpose of the Lord that is revealed in the vow is sons on the throne. This is the Lord's vow. The people asked that the kings would be kept. And the Lord's promise is that there would be a son of David on the throne forever. They say, just keep them. And the Lord says, forever. The Lord's vow is greater and of greater zeal. He also gives a condition. The Lord will teach them. He'll teach them. But they must keep the covenant. And we find out, if you read the story of the kings, the sons of David, they did not follow. So few followed at all. David would become the gold standard. Bill Adams reminded this, of, uh, this to us last week. That David would become the gold standard for which every future king would be measured. In 2 Kings 22.2 it says, And he did what is right in the eyes of the Lord, speaking of a future son of David. He did what is right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David his father. David would become the gold standard, but honestly, not only did they not measure up to the covenant of the Lord, they didn't even measure up 
to the standard of David. Fallen, weak, zealous David. So few of the kings were willing to suffer for the sake of the worship of the Lord. Instead, they built their own palaces. They built their own treasuries. They built their own reputation. And Jesus alone would meet that standard. Jesus alone, in the line of David, a son from the, the in the line of David, a son of David, Jesus would be born. And we celebrate that in this time. And so we cry out unto us, a son, the vow of the Lord has been kept. And he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of the world, this line of kings descending from David, has become according to the vow of the Lord. The people ask, just keep the kings. And the Lord says forever, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, His anointed, and He shall reign forever and ever. At every point, the Lord's vow is greater than the people's request and the Lord's fulfillment of the vow is greater than anything that they or we had imagined. Verses 13 through 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. The dwelling is forever, and he desires to dwell there. He, he desires to be in the midst of the people in a particular place of his own choosing. In Jerusalem, he desires to dwell there in the midst of the people. Don't miss the glorious hope and joy that the Lord has desired to make His home among the people. Do you get that? The Lord, who reigns in splendor forever and ever, has desired to make His home among us. To this day, that is our enduring hope because it is the Lord's sure vow. And it's central to the promise of God. What, is, what does the end look like? What do you long for? What, what do you envision when you envision our great hope? Okay, where, what is the zealousness of your hope? Revelation 21 verses 10 through 11. Really the whole passage. But we'll look at just verses 10 through 11. And he, the Lord, carried me, John, away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out from, of heaven from God, having the glory of God. You know what that tells me? The Lord desires to dwell in Jerusalem forever. And he is going to make his heavenly city a city on earth in the new heavens and the new earth. And he will dwell there, right there in the midst of the people forever. That's what our hope looks like. I, I wonder if one of the things that we should do is we should spend more time looking forward to that hope that we would become more zealous for God to dwell in our midst. Lord, come. You know, when I saying uh, about his, the government being upon his shoulders, I, I just wonder, he shall reign forever and ever. I'd love to see a glimpse of it at all. You long for the government of our God 
to be perfectly and eternally at work in the midst of the people. The Lord desired it. And it's good news for a people who are on a journey to worship the Lord. Our journey is to a heavenly Jerusalem that will descend to be in our midst. And at the time, at the end of time, the Lord will bring heavenly Jerusalem to rest upon the new earth and our pilgrimage will be done and the refugees will, fa- will finally have our home. Do you want that? Man, every refugee longs to finally land on a peaceful shore. You're either a refugee or you're at home in this world. Do you long for that peaceful shore? And the Lord begins to just pile on blessing in this passage. Look at verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Abundant blessing and satisfaction. As the the Lord begins to make his vow, it just takes the, the vow of David and the hope of the people and just ups the ante to a greater blessing and a greater satisfaction. Isn't verse 15 really at the core of every government's promise? And we're gonna make this place abundant with provisions. It's a platform speech. We're gonna make sure that the poor are satisfied with bread. What government doesn't make that promise when it's looking to be instituted? But look at the world. No government has ever fulfilled it. Not one. Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's zealous. He's desired it. There will be satisfaction for the poor and there will be blessed provision for all of the people. Righteousness and peace. The Lord's desired it and his zeal will accomplish it. I love the way that Isaiah 9, 7 says it. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Friends, it's not just that God will establish his government. It's that his government is going to increase forever. Friends, there is one big government I'm excited about. And I want, I'm I'm on board. And the Lord is zealous for this big government going to increase forever. And so will righteousness. And so will peace. And every single government, small, local, large, and national, will cease. They'll be judged. They'll be put to an end. There will be no use for them. Are you zealous for that government to be established and to increase. James Montgomery Boyce tells a story of a meeting at the National Association of Evangelicals in the 1980s. After it, President Ronald Reagan spoke at it. He spoke and the audience was applauding wildly. Charles Colson took the podium and he reminded everyone that the kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One. 
In fact, there will be no Air Force One. A whole city will descend. And our king is in that city. And his government's going to increase forever. And of his righteousness as a peace, there is no end. Is that your heart's cry for the government of the Lord through his king, his Messiah, the son of David, Jesus Christ, to reign forever and ever. Has that captured your zeal? Friends, I've seen so much. I don't know if zeal's the right word. Just emotion. Anger, despair, excitement, and excited, over-promising words these days. I see a lot of zeal. Do you have zeal for that kingdom? We're told that the priests and the saints Verse 16, her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. What did they ask? They asked for that they would be clothed with righteousness. Do you know what's better than righteousness? Salvation. Redemption. Rescue. Oh, what sweet relief. I need not be righteous. I need only be rescued. And that rescue comes with the promise that I would be made righteous, clothed with not my righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. And it closes with the promise, ultimately, of Messiah. Verses 17 and 18, Then there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. We have strength and glory. His enemies I will clothe with shame, and on him his crown will shine. Power and glory. Jesus is that son of David, and he is also the savior of all of Jerusalem's kings. And on the throne, the eternal throne, he will sit forever and ever. I would ask you, church, do you have zeal for that? Now, the Question implies that your job is to now go work up said zeal, to go perform some great righteousness, to prove that you're like David. David wasn't even like David, all right? David doesn't even live up to the gold standard. That's why the second half of this passage is truly our genuine hope and plea. Lord, I won't measure up to David. David didn't even measure up to David. But you have vowed, and in your promise, I will trust. And you know what happens when you begin with faith and not just a call to be more zealous? You know what happens? When when the call is to trust in the Lord, you will find him desirous. You will find him satisfying. You will find him sure. You will find his promises true. And in the midst of that faith, as his word infects his people, we will become zealous for the greatness of his name. We will become zealous for his worship. So really this morning is a call to faith, a call to dependence, a call to worship. Lord God, I thank you that you have made provision through the cross of Jesus Christ that David and Solomon, and Rehoboam, and us, and all of the people, and all of the priests, and all of the saints, 
might be reconciled to our God, gather in your name and that you would be in our midst. I thank you for the cross by which we are atoned for. And I pray that you would cause us to be zealous for your vow and your zealousness, your desire, your fulfillment in the Christ would only spur on our zeal by faith. Thank you, Lord. We trust you that you would do this in the midst of the people. We, don't, we each have a different part to play in this labor, in this prayer, in this faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would work in the midst of your people to grow us as a people bent on worship in the presence of our God. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name, in the name of Jesus, the King. Amen.